0: American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Oh, okay. So now I'm obsessed with time.
1: Okay, as I finish this transaction, are you ready to start the next episode of American Timelines? American
0: Timelines!
1: By History for
0: Jerks.
1: My name's Joe, and I'm here with Gruff. My name's Loud, and this is Gruff. Hi. You may know us from the Gruff and Loud show. Thanks for being here, Gruff. Thanks for having me, Loud. Yeah, we got another episode here where you're filling in. For Amy, or maybe she's never coming back, or maybe I would, she's...
0: I would think she's coming back.
1: She might come back. Maybe not ever permanently. It might be just something she's just, meh. But she likes the good ones. She likes the good stories. And I think she's missing out, because I got a good one that I'm going to try to cover.
0: Oh, are you covering that one? Yeah, the no, Frank Olsen. We're going to yeah, try to no, do it. That, that,
1: I'm glad you are. We're going to try to do it. I think it's a good thing. And and you've got information about it that I didn't know, so we'll get to that. That's towards the end of the episode. So if you don't want to hear the rest of the bullshit, just fast forward to the end of the yeah, episode. Yeah, that's the better part anyway. Uh, it might not be good. I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Well, I so think. as I finish placing my order for Dr. Sasquatch Soap, which is not sponsoring us.
0: No, not at all. Uh,
1: so we can say whatever we want about
0: them, but I'm going to try it. It's gruff here, loves it. I do enjoy it. I do I do feel bad about how much I enjoy it. Yeah. it but it really started me, It started me back down a path that i yeah. i enjoy it's a nice it's a nice path where i take it to, i pay attention to some self care it it got me back into the uh shaving you know it got me back with uh shaving with a straight blade and uh a like the soap and brush style right. wow yeah
1: really i don't even shave
0: no i now traveling i didn't bring all that crap
1: i made to shave a little bit i have this is how stupid i am like i have a razor that I got from Dollar Shave Club. That and I haven't subscribed to Dollar Shave Club since pre-pandemic, so I've been using the same razor because I have a beard. So I just trim yeah, a little you, bit above my cheek, above mm-hmm. my beard line, and a little, and my neck. Yeah. Uh, so I've been using the same razor for like that's, a year. I mean, I grew a bigger beard during the pandemic, mm-hmm. but still, but I use an electric razor otherwise. So I have a. Well, I mean, well, I've been using the same, and it's time for me to get a new one. It's yeah. fucking. Tearing up my face well, and neck, then, and I just yeah. I'm lazy, well, and I'm a piece of
0: shit. I don't think you're a piece <laughs> of shit. Maybe a bit lazy when it comes to the self care, but oh, you're just... lazy. lazy. You're the lazy one. Yeah. I, All right. Yeah, I am. Well, I didn't have the desired effect. I'm sorry. But I mean it's true. I mean I I do I do exercise on a regular basis. That's true.
1: You exercise more than me, so I'm the lazy one. No,
0: I think you accomplish more in a day. No, nah, well, that
1: doesn't mean I'm good at exercising or no. I'm not lazy.
0: And it doesn't you know just because I exercise Man, doesn't mean I just I'm just got to get into the routine. That's all it is.
1: My dog likes it when I give her a walk, so mm-hmm. I need to do that more often. Anyway, November of 1953. We're finally coming to the end finally of 1953 mm. it's been the longest year ever um i don't but think we'll ever reach the end of the 50s or it, if we do that might be the end of american timelines i don't know i'm not threatening like no but it seems like it's maybe jump the shark i don't know if amy's done i don't know we'll see maybe we'll keep going in the 40s well, I mean, it might be harder to find stuff
0: of the 40s wait, but november are, 3rd are, wait, is where are I'm you started. working backwards
1: yeah okay yeah the last season was the 40s okay Well, you should know that because you've listened. So we started with the 90s. Yeah. Then we did the 80s. Yeah. Then we did the 70s. That's right. And this is the 60s. There's a pattern here.
0: I got it. Now we're the 50s, so so next will be the 40s. Yeah, I think you'll find stuff in the 40s.
1: And the reason we did that is we thought, we knew that the 70s, we thought the 70s and the 60s would be really good. So we wanted to work our way up to that. We wanted to be good at what we are doing by the time we get that, but now- We've already been there and done that. I don't know if that had its desired effect. I don't know if we were ever good at it. We might have been. We might be good at it. No, we don't I said, know.
0: I, I mean, I think you we guys are. we figured out yeah. what
1: we're doing. And then, yeah, sometimes we didn't agree what this podcast was, and then sometimes we did. So this is what it is. It's American Timelines where we cover true crime and pop culture and notable news year by year, what was happening. Uh, but we talk about it sort of in a laissez-faire way, yeah, uh, a sort of blase uh, attitude about
0: it. What if you're sitting on a couch with a friend, talking about what happened during a certain point in yeah, American history? Why not just
1: turn off the TV, all the different things, all the streaming things. Put your phone down, grab a beer, yeah. and let's talk to a friend about history.
0: Maybe, maybe, maybe a non-alcoholic beverage
1: or a water. You can have a water. Maybe you can toke up a bunch of pot, maybe. and then sit and talk to your buddy about. Birthdays. Who was born in 1953 in November? Maybe November 3rd, 1953, you could talk about uh, an American comedian and TV host that used to be on SNL was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on November 3rd, 1953. Maybe you could talk about that. And let's cue the music.
0: Amy, Amy And it it could
1: be a guy who was on SNL that was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and grew up in the suburb of Castle Shannon. Maybe a guy whose parents separated and was raised by his mother, Norma. Can I guess? A dietician at a a Baptist nursing home. Yeah, at any time you can
0: guess. Chevy Chase?
1: Maybe it's a guy that was on SNL that was reluctant to speak about his father, usually just saying he moved on when I was very young, not Chevy Chase. Maybe it's a guy that was on SNL that is the oldest of Norma's five children and in his early life often looked at after the rest of his siblings.
0: Not that Aykroyd.
1: No. Maybe not it was even a in gu- the
0: same time period?
1: No. Okay. Maybe it was a guy that was on SNL that attended St. Anne's School a Catholic Elementary School. And maybe this guy's personality during this period was not one of an innate performer but of a shy kid. Huh. Maybe it was a guy from SNL whose first inspiration to pursue a comedy career came as a child when he was taken to see comedian Kelly Monteith at a Kelly Pittsburgh Monteith. club. Uh, he. After the show, Monteith was kind enough to answer the young man's questions about being a comedian, leaving him thinking, "Man, I'm gonna work hard at this. Seems like fun." Brr, 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 brr. Hey, buddy.
0: I'm gonna say I, I, I'm gonna say Don <laughs> Novello, but I know it's wrong. Is that Dennis Miller? Yes, Dennis Miller. Oh, yes. Yeah. Hey, buddy. buddy.
1: I was trying to do the Dana Carvey impression. Yeah. I, yeah. Brr, brr. What was the jingle bells and Dana Carvey in <laughs> them? He was like, uh, "What the hell's a bobtail, huh, buddy?" What the, mm-hmm. hell's a Bob, what the hell's a bobtail? Bounce on bobtail's rig. What the heck's a bobtail? Anyway. Uh, yeah, Dennis Miller went to Keystone Oaks High School. Their col- team colors are black and gold, home of the Golden Eagle. Ooh. And according to Wikipedia, there's only one notable alumni, and it's Dennis Miller. Nice. Nobody else is notable. I am from Keystone Oaks High School. I
0: would like to think they're notable, but on a personal no, personal level.
1: You would like to think that cuz you're a nice guy, but if you're listening to this show from Keystone Oaks and you went to Keystone Oaks High School, guess they don't what? They consider you notable. You are not notable. No, you are nothing.
0: They don't consider you notable.
1: According to Wikipedia, they think you suck and you're nothing. So if so, you are a Keystone Oaks High School alum, please turn off this podcast no, cuz you are not no, no, worthy no. to listen to it. it.
0: If you it, turn off the podcast off Keystone the podcast. Oaks High School no. alum Go, listen here, you golden eagle.
1: Oh, you're gonna you're gonna talk directly to the golden eagles. Well,
0: yeah, I'm just gonna tell them to settle in their roost.
1: Okay, settle in your roost.
0: Settle in your roost. Enjoy our conversation, and maybe while you're enjoying our conversation, why don't you just go over to Wikipedia?
1: Yeah, and, and, and then and then you know,
0: or you know what, you know what you should do, golden eagle
1: make something of yourself
0: maybe they have and Wikipedia doesn't know
1: make something of yourself maybe they should just share. so that Wikipedia thinks you're as good as Dennis Miller
0: or maybe they should just share their accomplishments with Wikipedia and Wikipedia will like go not say, well, one hey, person is
1: notable at all like not more, <laughs> no, like I, some of those notable alumni it's loose who's notable like there's people who've done barely anything and we'll get to there's like an Olympic speed walker on one of these notable alumni sites so
0: that is the best of speedwalkers. No, so I in
1: in actuality, I really have nothing against any Golden Eagles no, from uh, of course not. Keystone, Keystone Oaks High School. Yeah. but maybe it's a small school. But it's I'm actually sad for them that Dennis Miller is their only notable alumni.
0: I wonder. I wonder if Wikipedia. other notable alumni from Keystone keep it to themselves because Dennis Miller is the notable the notable alumni. Yeah, player. like
1: maybe there's like a pack. Like maybe Dennis Miller like pays them off. Like hey, please. No don't just let, let wikipedia me, just let me like, have this maybe he became a wikipedia editor just to
0: delete anytime anybody adds another noble not. he so like his wikipedia page i enjoyed his talk show i may have not enjoyed his 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 fox his his later career
1: you want to guess which two early or which two comedians were her his earliest childhood comedy heroes
0: kelly monteith
1: no, beside no, it. Kelly Monteith just gave him that. Okay, yeah. And true. then if you've never heard of Kelly Monteith, I which I hadn't, I Googled him and I found an uh episode of Johnny Carson he was on and he much much like Seinfeld. Like Yeah, no, like you would have thought those were Seinfeld jokes, like it, before Seinfeld.
0: Seinfeld not just Seinfeld jokes, but Seinfeld delivery.
1: Seinfeld delivery, Seinfeld. Like basically Seinfeld must have heard
0: this guy and I, like, "I'm going to do comedy." It, it's just like Kelly Monteith. It's it's I mean, it's a nice rhythm, and it's a natural rhythm, though. You know, yeah, he was great, and I'd
1: never heard of him. It's not, no, he wasn't great. They're not great jokes. No, but they're like wasn't. the early Seinfeld jokes that aren't great. It, it
0: was like moving, moving from the ages of setup punchline to observational punchline, like total
1: observation. Like, yeah. thank you. Why do we say thank you so much? How are you doing? Well, yeah. Why do we say how are you? You're not listening. I, no. I don't know how. Yeah, it's just like, whatever.
0: Anyway. No, like that bit where he just said thank you five times was... Yeah. Yeah, If he needed to go to like seven or eight to make me laugh, just to push it that much further.
1: Well, Dennis, here's a hint. One of Dennis Miller's comedy heroes is a Bowling Green State University. Tim Conway. Yes, Tim Conway and Jonathan Winters. Nice. And by high school, he had finally developed a reputation for humor. At Keystone Oaks, Dennis Miller was a member of the Physical Fitness Club. Huh. And in his senior year, he worked on the Keystone newspaper and served on the student council, but lost his bid for senior class president. Mm -hmm. Despite Dennis Miller's reputation for humor, his actual personality at this time was one that was reserved, lacking self-confidence and hidden under a layer of comedy. So he was funny, but he was still shy. He graduated from high school in 1971 with the intent of studying to become a sports writer. Then he went to Point Park University, and became a member of, member of Sigma Tau Gamma Fraternity.
0: Sigma Tau Gamma?
1: Sigma Tau Gamma, Gamma. baby. Dennis Miller liking his social status at this period as being lower than Booger of Revenge of the Nerds. Wow. He majored in journalism in the fall of his senior year at the university. He began writing for the South Hills Record, mixing humor into his sports reporting, which kind of makes, an, you know, no, we know that, later that, he was in Money Night Football.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh... But when the paper changed its payment structure to pay around an eighth of a penny per column inch, Miller quit. And he graduated in 1976 with a degree in journalism. Uh, and when he, when asked why he didn't pursue journalism, he said, I'm just not that interested in other people's business, baby. And that's a tragic flaw in journalism, buddy. Buddy. I added the baby and the
0: buddy. Hey, buddy.
1: But a- uh, after I'm college. That's why I say buddy all the time. Hey, buddy. Hey, b- buddy. Hey, b- b- buddy. Buddy. After college, Dennis Miller was unable to find work in journalism. Instead, he moved through several occupations, including a clerk at Giant Eagle uh, a, a Giant Eagle Deli, a janitor, a delivery man, a florist, and an ice cream scooper at the Village Dairy. Miller recalled that when he was 21, five years out of high school, wearing a paper hat while working alongside teens, excited about getting their driver's licenses, that's when he... Uh, he really wanted to quit and then a real spur to quit the ice cream scooping job was when the prettiest girl he had attended high school with came in and he was the one who had to take her order which filled him with embarrassment and Dennis Miller later stated at that time he feared that if he stayed in such a job his life would become a Franz Kafka novella and it stiffened his resolve to start pursuing a comedy career you just hear him saying that yeah what no, am I, I in a Franz Kafka yeah, novella <laughs> like yeah. that that was the only issue with, with Dennis Miller I think it's like Half his joke's like nobody had any fucking clue uh, what he was talking no, about. No, it it was
0: he like but it that, was funny. Like as as a as a gifted kid who spent too much free time in the library growing yeah, up, yeah. I really dug Dennis Miller. He made me like laughing at his humor made me feel smarter. Just because okay. I got the joke. And and like I it's like oh, it, am I in a
1: French Kafka novella. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so he left the ice cream parlor. I don't know why I'm doing his whole... No, we don't have to do his whole thing. But he when he, start, he started stand-up, because in 1979, he saw a Robin Williams comedy special on HBO. And he decided he had to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comedian. Uh, and he started at open mic nights in Pittsburgh. And a couple times he signed up and didn't go on stage because he had a lot of stage fright. And then he had a lot of anger with himself over the question of whether the drive to perform was a need for approval from others which i've struggled with that too. I've done a little bit of stand up, not a lot. I've done stand up here and there and I I often feel like why am i doing this? Like what what's my need? Like why it, is it an insecurity that i need to get on stage and get laughs from people? So i often I'm like why am i on the way there i'm like why am i doing this? Oh, yeah, i don't need no. like why what am i trying to prove? Like i don't need to do this. But then when you get up there and when you do really well it's like an adrenaline rush. Oh, like, yeah. This is awesome! I'm a god! I'm a king at this. And then when you do really bad, it's like, what am I, a fucking idiot? What oh, the fuck, this? I'm stupid. Why am I doing this? So, it's like hit or miss. It's just too hit or miss for me. And I'm like, why am I? There's so many other ways to do comedy, and if I'm not, and you know, I'm not getting paid, if I'm not getting paid, like, why am I doing it? So
0: well, I'm yeah, and and if the, if that adrenaline and that want, you got to have that want to be on stage like my my yeah. limit, my limited experience with it is when i'm on stage i really i i enjoy watching the audience squirm. Yeah, okay. You know i i don't mind the i don't mind the dead silence. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. well then that's perfect for you then. Well like I, it, it's just one of those, it, it's i you know the last time i was on the last time i did something it was in a town by where we grew up And it was yeah. And I remember I actually wrote some bits for it And on the way there I decided no I'm not going to do you're anything You're not going to do what you wrote I'm, I'm not going to do, do anything I wrote well, cause then, And
1: then in your head When you're playing it in your head How it's going to go Like In your head you could see it going great In all these ways And just think oh it's just going to be great In an atmosphere and whatever But yeah Anyway Dennis Miller was broke for a while You know he didn't have a car in Pittsburgh He had hitch rides uh, but he eventually saved up to a thousand dollars, which he used to try to fast-track his comedy career by moving to New York City. Once there, he had to bribe a landlord to give him a room for two hundred bucks, then had to pay the security deposit of two fifty and the first month's first month's rent of two fifty. And he spent seven hundred of his thousand dollars savings on his first day in New York in a sparse bunker-like room. But while he was there in New York, he submitted and here was his big break. He submitted a joke for a Playboy magazine contest for humor writing that was judged by an all-star panel including Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Cosby, David Brenner, Martin Mull, and Art Buckwald,
0: Nice. And Buck Henry. Nice. Of
1: around 15,000 entries, Miller tied for second, and his joke and picture appeared in the June 1979 issue of the magazine. Oh. Makes me want to get that. Yeah, Uh, I'd
0: like to look that up.
1: Yeah, he won $500 in in that competition with the following joke. Here's the joke that he submitted. The only difference between group sex and group therapy is that in group therapy, you hear about everyone's problems, and in group sex, you see them.
0: I don't know if that's... Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean it's, it's
1: second place. You see their problems. You see their balls and their skin tags. That's what he's talking about. Well, and that same day, I want to say, like Dennis Miller was born on November 3rd, and there's another birthday. So what? cue the music again. You got to listen to it again, Steve.
0: Oh, God damn
1: What about making a new one that goes, Steve kind of likes birthdays, or Gruff. Gruff kind of likes, doesn't mind birthdays, he doesn't mind birthdays. birthdays. Okay, November 3rd, 1953, American actress known for playing Mimi Bobek, the outrageously made up, flamboyantly vulgar and vindictive nemesis of Drew Carey on the sitcom The Drew Carey Show, was born. Uh, Kathy Kinney. Yeah. She had been involved in television, feature film, and stage work for years. She was born in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, the daughter of Irish-American parents Marion and Harold Kinney, an automob- automobile dealer. Her father died when she was 15 years old, and you don't seem that broken up about it, Steve. Well, I mean,
0: I will say it didn't affect me personally, but I, I'm just intently listening because I've never known anything about her outside of her... <laughs> Uh, Drew Carey performances.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. She attended Stevens Point Area Senior High School. Colors are red and black. Home of the?
0: Red Eagle?
1: Nope, the Panthers. The idiot. Uh, notable alumni include uh, Kurt Claussen, Olympic race walker. Kathy Bennett, NIU Huskies women's basketball head coach. Oh. Rachel A. Graham, a Wisconsin State Court judge. Brandon Peterson, a Marvel comic book artist. I don't know if you know him. I, I do not. And Ben Provisor, an Olympic Greco-Roman wrestler. So these are just examples of anybody could be a notable alumni, but that other school that Dennis Miller went to has zero.
0: Well, all right, let's let's, let's think about the other school for a second. Do we know how the average people? We like, don't know. I don't like know the amount of people that were I there? I guess I could look it up. Like, I mean, it could just come down to a percentage.
1: It could be just a, not many people went there and yeah. everyone else has failed.
0: They haven't failed. They just focused on smaller goals. No, they failed.
1: In 1976, Kathy Kinney moved to New York City, where she found work as a secretary at WCBS-TV. Her boss enjoyed hunting, and sometimes she would (laughs) chat with him about his hunting trips, occasionally quipping, so did you kill anything this week? (laughs) She used this experience to inspire herself for the role of Mimi. During that time, she worked nights at New York comedy clubs to improve her improv comedy skills. This led to a job teaching improv classes. Director Bill Sherwood attended one of her classes and then later wrote a part for her in his 1986 film, Parting Glances. I don't know if you ever saw
0: that. I've never seen
1: that. But once she did so well in that, she moved to L.A. and pursued a career in acting. She worked regularly as a character actress, getting small roles in various TV series such as Seinfeld. She was in the Handicap Spot episode. Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman.
0: Mm -hmm. With Dean Cain.
1: Yep. And she was on Drew Carey, of course. Grace Under Fire, Full House, Boy Meets World, World Meets Boy, Boy Meets Dick, Dick Meets Jane, Harry Meets Balls, The Larry Sanders Show, and My Name is Earl. My name is Earl. Some of those were fake. You have to figure it out. His her first memorable television role is generally considered her regular stint. on new heart is Miss Goddard, the town librarian. Oh, I yes. love new heart. My name is Larry. This is my brother, Daryl. And this is my other
0: brother, Daryl. You didn't see me reacting when he said Daryl's because that was the thing. They never talked. They didn't talk.
1: But I really want to see that. And I don't think it's streaming anywhere. No, I haven't. Like, it, you can't even buy it, like, on Prime? Or can you buy it on Prime? I know? don't know. It's, I've it, heard lately that it's not anywhere.
0: No, we, we, we looked for it the other day. We did? I think. No, Andy and I
1: looked oh, for it. Oh, you and Andy, my brother. Yeah. Andy's my brother. He's got a lot of hair. On
0: his that, body. As a matter of fact, you're loud. I'm gruff. Andy was hair.
1: Andy's hair. He's Andy's gruff. Hair. I'm loud. He's hair.
0: There's also tall.
1: And he used to have long hair. There's a tall in There's the mix. Oh, yeah. And, but he's hair now because he looks like a bear. Like if. If he was nude running outside, somebody would shoot him because they think he's a bear.
0: I don't think they'll shoot him. I think they'll take a picture of him and try to pass it off as a mini squatch,
1: either a mini Sasquatch or a bear. And he—he's a fucking bear. He had—I mean—American Bear magazine, and he's got several, several uh, Tootsie Pops and sugar daddies he stuck does, somewhere he, in his torso. He, does not. he, does he might. Not. And then on November fifth, the film How to Marry a Millionaire was Ooh. released. Are you familiar with that, Steve? I,
0: I have heard of it. Yes.
1: Directed by Gene. Who is it directed by?
0: I don't know. Oh, idiot. I'm directed aware by... of it, not familiar <laughs> with it. <laughs> just kidding.
1: Directed by Gene Negulus- Negulesco. I don't know how to say that. Starring Lauren Bacall, Betty Grable, and... Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> is the first film to be filmed in CinemaScope. Ooh. Uh, which I Googled for... I lost about 20 minutes trying to figure out what the hell CinemaScope is. and I don't I think, have an answer. I've always assumed
0: it. it was just bullshit.
1: I read somewhere that it was like, oh, now people could, with that, now people didn't have to wear glasses to watch it anymore special glasses i was like isn't that 3d so is it 3d without glasses no, no. but it's something to make it wider like the screen got uh, more wider so okay. I, i'm guessing before this it was
0: probably just the it was like a ratio. square yeah, yeah it's yeah, like yeah. A, now it's wide i yeah. guess it probably yeah. moved from it that's probably where it moved from a square to a rectangle it was maybe.
1: like some kind of science that like was able to stretch use the the illusion film. to yeah. stretch the whatever and yeah. i don't really understand i'm definitely not smart but it was the first to be filmed in Cinemascope, but the release was delayed to allow a movie called The Robe to actual, actually debut the format. So huh. if something else did, well, I not That know was why. the
0: prestige film.
1: Yeah, well, this film was, uh, the plot was three women set out to find eligible millionaires to marry, but find true love in the process. And I got one little snippet about this movie because I didn't know what else to say about it. Okay. According to Lauren Bacall... Uh, Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Now, I'm fascinated by Marilyn Monroe. Now, obviously, I I married a woman that kind of resembles her and was a big fan of her, so that's probably part of it. But I think she still is a fan of her. Right? Uh, Marilyn Monroe's just so beautiful. Like, she really, like...
0: Oh, yeah, no, it was...
1: She's beautiful. Like, if I ran a type, it's anyone who looks like... Like, when I see her on any old movies, I'm just like, I can't... I have no idea what else is happening in the movie because she's so strikingly beautiful. I've never... Seen a human more beautiful than Marilyn Monroe. But anyway, she was a challenge to work with, Uh, according to Lauren Bacall. Not because she was unpleasant, but rather her insecurity and total dependence on her personal acting coach, Natasha Leites, for approval. Uh, Lauren Bacall said, Betty Grable was a funny, outgoing woman, totally professional and easy. Marilyn was a frightened, insecure lady who trusted only her coach, and she was always late. She said during our scene, she'd look at my forehead instead of my eyes. At the end of a take, she'd look to her coach standing behind the director for approval. If the head shake was a no, she'd insist on another take. A scene often went to 15 or more takes, which oh. meant I'd have to be good in all of them because no one knew which one would be used. Not easy, often irritating. And yet, I couldn't dislike Marilyn. She had no meanness in her, no bitchery at all. She just had butchery. to concentrate on herself. And the people who were there only for her, which is an unfortunate thing. And that's wrong. I don't know if you've ever known anybody that looks at your forehead when they talk to you, but I have, especially in theater. And I notice they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. It must be an insecurity they have, but it's weird. No, it's weird. I. Yeah, I, how you doing? yeah no, how are you it. There? No, it's. Yeah. It, it, it's funny because
0: it's hard. Like I is one is one of the things I would do at the at various restaurants I'd work at. I'll, You'd look at people's foreheads, yeah. When you talk to them, yeah, to fuck with them because they can't because they 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 know something's wrong, yeah, but, they but they can't, can't figure, figure out it I, out because what I I don't look here, yeah. I look right between the eyes, right between their eyes. So well, it looks like I'm looking. It looks like you're looking at, yeah. exactly, but you know oh, I'm not looking at. That's you. That's weird. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I knew somebody, and and yeah, I'm not going to mention her name in case she ever listens. I don't want her feelings, but. It was like, why is she looking at her? You ever know if she looks at your forehead? Yeah, it does to me too. She just does that to people. It was just a weird thing. Eyes are
0: distracting. Sometimes. Sometimes You not. could get
1: lost in them.
0: Exactly. Your deep chocolate brown eyes.
1: You want to move to the world of sports here in November of 1953? Why not? Uh, what do you know about baseball antitrust laws? Uh,
0: very little.
1: So you're not a baseball antitrust expert?
0: I, not at all. You're familiar with
1: antitrust laws.
0: I am familiar with antitrust laws, and I'm I'm curious at how they apply to baseball because I know how they apply to things like phone companies and yeah. banks. So
1: I didn't realize this not happened this, this long ago. But apparently, yeah. in 1953, uh, on November 9th, the Supreme Court ruled that the major league that Major League Baseball was exempt from antitrust laws. What? And I think later on they decided that baseball is a sport, not a business which oh. it is a business. So what I'm guessing that means is like somebody else, like people have tried to file a suit, I guess, and like we want to start another, it's not fair. They, they want to We start can't start another, another league baseball league. league. They have all the players, but I guess they rule that that's, they're exempt because it's a sport. Oh, my
0: Lord. Yeah. That's a, that's. That's when all the fuckery really began. If you like, think about it, that like, was when the fuckery got locked in, yo.
1: Like NFL technically doesn't have a. Exact. No, it's all that's, monopoly, that's when the, that's when no, but that's
0: when right. the fuckery that's when the fuckery got locked in. Yeah. Is you you said you're not a business, you're
1: you're a sport, so you can do whatever you want. Exactly. It's kind of like the and that probably trickled down into the free agency and all that. Oh stuff. Yeah, yeah, dude. And at this time, players didn't get very much.
0: I don't no. think so. At, at yeah. that time, players probably still had to work off-season jobs. Oh, that's a sad thing.
1: Well, we, we last episode we covered the fact that, like, Jackie Robinson would do a tour, like, all-star baseball tours. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm thinking about it, he probably had to do that to make money. Like, yeah. he probably couldn't make money. He probably had to do all-star games to, to make more money. Like, he yeah. could make more money on that probably. Jeez. Well, and then well, we're going to move to November 15th. We're going to keep on moving. Moving? In 1953, which I don't know if you know who Dr. Leon Stewart is. Not at all. Uh, but on November 15, 1953, he was an amateur astronomer. So like I'm trying to going. see if I understand this. So this is like a space store. So he saw and photographed a bright white light on the lunar surface. Hmm. He believed it was a rare asteroid impact. Like he... He thinks he witnessed an asteroid hitting the moon and there was like a like an explosion yeah. that he got to see in 1953. That's pretty badass. But professional astrono- astronomers dismissed and disputed his Stewart's event, they called it, for, oh, for
0: 50 years. Scientific community, scientific establishment. I got some words for them. But you go got on. words
1: for them and you're pissed. But you know what? See, you can be happy because in 2003, NASA looked for and found the very crater oh. that Leon Stewart apparently saw. Good. Um, is it called
0: Leon's Crater?
1: So, Stuart, I think it's called Stuart. But here's the Wait. thing. that's That paragraph I got from Wikipedia. But then I looked up an article on skyandtelescope.org, mm-hmm. and the story is titled, Lunar Flash Doesn't Pan Out. Um, they show the picture, and they get in, and they're like, they end up looking further, and they think it's not. But what I saw on Wikipedia was that they did say it was. So... Uh, because, and on Wikipedia they said, I think it's on Wikipedia, they said the bright flare captured that evening by Leon H. Stewart's backyard telescope matches the position of a small, fresh-looking crater recorded by a, strace, a spacecraft four decades later, uh, Bonnie J. Barati and Lane Johnson, a student at Pomona College, and Bonnie was from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, They unearthed a a one-and-a-half-kilometer-wide smoking gun and data from the Clementine Orbiter, whose high-definition cameras mapped the entire moon in 1994. Although the annals of amateur astronomy chronicle hundreds of such transient lunar phenomena, almost all considered suspect by professionals, Stewart's event stands apart because it was both seen and photographed. A press release even trumpeted NASA Solves Half-Century-Old Moon Mystery, so they did say, they NASA said, it is that. It is, uh, well, that's good. That. But then I guess they're skeptics. So then I got, once I got the skeptics, and it seemed less exciting, and then I just moved
0: on. Well, I mean, it, it's good to have skeptics. I'd rather have skeptics than people just completing, completely shutting it down.
1: I guess. But how cool would it be if you were a moon guy in the 50s,
0: and, and you you're watching
1: that. the fucking moon all day, and then you see a fucking... Boom. Holy shit! Yeah. I think I just saw, a fl-
0: yeah, a,
1: an asteroid hit the fucking moon. Exactly. There's a bright light. That's so cool. No, you didn't. Fuck you. You didn't. See,
0: I, I, like, if I would hope that if I was in that man's position, I'd, I'd be strong enough in my faith and not what snap. I saw. Yeah, not to snap or not. Well, to he just, had photos of it, so he yeah. didn't have to like. Well, and just not, and just not to. You know, be able to say, "Well, I I respect your opinion. You're a professional, but I'm going to continue to believe."
1: Yeah, and then they found the crater, which is good. But it was fresh looking fifty years later. But what who? What else is going to the moon? I mean, exactly, nothing's...
0: footprints still exist from. That's true, and dick prints. I think. I think somebody fucked the moon. I would hope so.
1: Would you fuck the moon? Would that be the first thing you did? Can you get your dick out in those I don't spacesuits? Think so. I
0: don't think you can get your dick out. Can in they vacuum? make a special
1: spacesuit that keeps your dick out?
0: I imagine.
1: Why don't you find a. Between now and next time you're on this, episode, this a show, your assignment is to find an astronomer
0: and ask him that. Find an astrometer.
1: astronomer. Astronomer. Or find an astronaut, not an astronaut. I don't think I can. Just Get a hold of an astronaut for me and find out if they can make a, a dickless spacesuit.
0: I'm going to say no right off the top of my head.
1: No, that you won't find somebody, or no, it will be their answer. To both. Wow.
0: I, I, think, I think Boy, I'm,
1: someone is a naysayer.
0: Well, I mean not just a naysayer. Gruff. It's gruff. Yeah. Got me. Well, I mean, it's gruff. He's the no, naysayer. Uh, yeah. I'll i, I, will, I will wear that. Oh, it's naysaying. Everything I create. No, I'm not naysaying everything you create. I'm just naysaying the possibility of a of a Crotchless spacesuit. Like I'm sure they can make a. What if
1: every spacesuit was always just crotchless because they wanted everyone's genitals to feel space?
0: I don't. I don't think that's a wise decision. I think it's cold
1: up there. Do you think if I googled crotchless spacesuit, there would be one like a? What would you, uh, come up? It would be Halloween
0: time. I I I I bet you can get something.
1: There's probably been some like sexy dance somewhere done with a crotchless spacesuit.
0: There was a. Wasn't there a movie, a softcore porn called Space Odyssey 2069? Jeez, oh, I don't know. Porn addict? <laughs> well, not an addict, just an enthusiast. <laughs> ah, enthusiast.
1: Enthusiasm? That's a good... There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Your enthusiasm is appreciated. Well, I hope so. Well, that brings us to November 17th, when the St. Louis Browns officially became the Baltimore Baseball Club. Well, the St. Louis Browns baseball team moved to Baltimore.
0: And became... The, the Baltimore, Baltimore baseball,
1: baseball Club, player. they would later become the Orioles. I think. Okay. Yeah. So Did there the you go. Did the BBC get mad? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't that's look so anything weird. else up about that's, it. That,
0: I, I, I'm. I don't think so. that's the. That makes the Browns the second team to move to Baltimore from Cleveland.
1: Yeah, so the Cleveland Browns were the second. Well, no, they didn't move. move from Cleveland. They moved from oh, St. Louis. That's right. St. Louis Browns.
0: I should have been paying attention. But they were the
1: second Browns to move to Baltimore. Yeah. But they didn't say the ber- Yeah, neither one changed. Anyway, that brings us to November 18th and one more birthday song. Come Amy,
0: on, we got another birthday. Amy birthday. Amy birthday. We
1: have another SNL alum, really? born in the same month as Dennis Miller, born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Chevy Th- Chase. This fellow was born on November 18th, 1953, in St. Louis, Missouri, one of five children of Kathleen. Kimball and her husband, Emmett, I can't give away the last name because I don't know who it is, is—who was an air, he was an aircraft company executive. A few months after he was born, the family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. When he was six, this SNL alum, they moved to Germany for four years. He is of Irish descent and was raised Catholic. He graduated from St. Joseph High School in Trumbull, Connecticut, Team Colors Maroon and Gold, home of the Cadets. Huh. Other notable alumni include uh, Major League Baseball umpire Dan Lasagna
0: <laughs> 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 and
1: professional snowboarder Julia Marino. See, anybody can be a notable alumni, a snowboarder and an umpire, but an umpire is a big deal, Dan Lasagna. It's Sonia probably, but I like to say Dan Lasagna.
0: I bet you're not alone. In
1: 1971, he earned a bachelor's degree in marketing from Sacred Heart University, and then took night courses at Fairfield University, where he played quarterback on the football team. We have an SNL alum that played college football with a quarterback, and I had no idea about this. No. This SNL alum also played guitar in bands during high school and gravitated to comedy in college. In 1977, he moved to San Diego and then to L.A., where he learned his craft at the Improv while tending bar there for a living. He had been doing stand-up for six years when he made his network television debut on The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson in 1984. He became a regular there and on Late Night with David Letterman in 1986, Saturday Night Live. Chris Elliott. Recruited his friend Dana Carvey, and Carvey, in turn, recommended him. Kevin Nealon. Oh, Kevin Nealon. This is Kevin Nealon, was a quarterback in college football. I can't
0: believe I didn't know it did not yeah kevin, kevin nealon was uh, a performer that i appreciated much too late
1: yeah but my I, favorite I, kevin nealon i think is mr subliminal I, yeah no i think that's <laughs> i think, I,
0: I, think. I, I, I mr subliminal and <laughs> so dumb but it's great i i enjoy his post snl work as the like in his, his character in happy madison and then He's like the hippie guy or yeah. whatever. Yeah, they're Just hippie. Easy like, to, yeah. easy, easy cause Like but. his his hippie, his hippie executive character <laughs> from uh, Grandma's Boy was also. It, it felt like a very much an extension yeah, of the Happy, boy, yeah. happy Madison character. Or Didn't the he also do?
1: Now, no, Phil Hartman did the caveman lawyer. Yeah,
0: right? Phil Hartman did the caveman lawyer. But
1: Danny Carvey did something like that. Oh, he did. Tonto, or no, he was Tarzan. Tarzan, Tonto, yeah, and Frankenstein. <laughs> <'Cause it's laughs> those years were the best. I mean, t- t- no, I, everybody t- t- hated him those years. But Dana Carvey, dude, I know. I really Dana Carvey was a genius. Mike Myers, Dennis, you know, John Lovitz, Kevin Neal, John, John Lovitz. Lovitz was Tonto.
0: Yeah, John Lovis a-
1: These were those were the best fucking yeah. like massive head and Harry. Like they had all these dumb, fucking
0: just things. It was just ridiculous. Oh
1: man, those were
0: the best. That was when, Co- when Conan O'Brien was writing for him. Conan, yeah, O'Bri-
1: Conan O'Brien is a fucking genius. Conan O'Brien, and I'm Black just Myers. done. I'm done talking about anybody else in comedy. Conan O'Brien is just the funniest human. I think he's the funniest person that's ever lived. Probably.
0: Well, I mean, like
1: everything he fucking says is hilarious.
0: I'd like to think that everything. That
1: guy's a fucking genius. Like, No, he is. That Colin Bryant needs a friend is fucking hilarious. Oh, and I, when I, I first I, started listening to it, I only listened to the interviews because I was like, oh, I don't want to listen. I'm just bantering, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but I started listening. To it, I was like, that's the best fucking part. And now I don't even want it. Like When that guest comes on, I'm like, get them off. I want to hear him just fucking with uh, Matt and Sona. Uh, God dang it. Fucking he's. And, and every time he says something so funny that I'm laughing out loud, I'm like, how how how's one man have it all?
0: How does he have it all? Like everything he just off the top of his head says well, he, the best ever and I love it. He's he's been honing his he's been honing his skills his since. writing
1: skills. He's had a chance to do it. That's the yeah. other thing
0: I think. Like he's also been lucky. Like
1: he's he came from a place where he was able to like, do it, you know, like like he was in a writer's room forever. Like I would kill, I was just like, well, writer's I was, room is all I want to do is just be in a writer's well,
0: room. Well, he's, he's been in a writer's room since The Simpsons. Before that, SNL. yeah. Before that, SNL. SNL, yeah. Yeah. Before that like, something I, else. I, I remember dressing as Dieter for, for Halloween in high school on Spirit yeah. Week. That was him? That, that was Mike Myers, but it was one of his sketches. One of his things he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a Tom
1: on Shropak. Chupac- that really because that's a, what I like about Conan too is that he's he's like not mainstream funny. Like he's no. he is now I guess mainstream, well, but he's that's silly. Be, like that's he's because he's, he's out moved, there and weird. And he's that's moved what
0: the, over a course of a lifetime. He's moved the mainstream of comedy to off weird road yeah, off road. You well, know? and
1: I and I oh, my only regret is that I didn't watch more of his show, his first show. Which was always weird and funny. Like, every time I watched oh, it, I was yeah. like, this is the fucking best thing ever. Oh, but I just I... didn't watch. And then I was too busy. Like, it was at a time in my life when I was, like, doing stuff. And yeah. I was like, didn't have time. And so I've been looking them up online, and they're oh, hilarious. But best. I wish I could watch. I want to watch all of them, because he's the best fucking thing ever. Um, and then on November 19th, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that baseball's not a sport. It's a business. Like, that's part of that same thing, well, I think. Good. But we're going to take a quick break before we get to the. That's the, fine. Or the last two things the last two big stories if you are cool
0: with that i'll we'll take fine. a quick break I'm fine with and we'll you. be right
1: back listen to our sponsor like check out this other podcast Nerd School. i think we'll up in there maybe. That's good. Right.
0: The Nerd School Podcast.
1: I've brought three nerds here to help me be a real, true nerd. I I love Marvel movies. I love superhero movies. Well, nerds, nerds like nerds. nothing better than to be able to talk about their nerd shit. The people who are actually interested in the nerd shit. And I like got walking in the comic store and I see them. They're playing Warhammer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Warhammer. And and I'm like sitting. I and will I'm, say
0: some male nerds back in the day probably would not have let you walk into the arcade and hang out with. Looking them.
1: through the books and like I'm listening to these guys and like they're. Really into it, like their whole life is this Warhammer game. Yeah, and I all the me. nerds that I ever like made fun of or picked on were all just. <laughs> laughing at me getting revenge. And just like, <laughs> but right.
0: we didn't need to be around you male nerds to be nerds on our own.
1: If, if you're in a good gaming group, they'll welcome new people. They'll like I'm walking it. out of the comic <laughs> store, like is someone going to see me saying like, oh, he's one of those guys. Yeah. You know, those, those those can't get a girl kind of guys. We are, are
0: just like, vibing because we all like this thing. We're and it's not. Broken.
1: The Nerd School Podcast. and We're back. Yeah. Hey. Welcome back. back! Yeah, we're welcome back. Remember, check out that show we just. Thanks for listening to that ad for the Nerd, Nerd School. School and Gruff. We maybe we should make a. We should make an ad for the Gruff and Loud Show. We really should. So maybe we have, maybe we will have by the time this happens. But yeah, check out the Gruff and Loud Show on YouTube. Just Google the Gruff and Loud Show, and it comes up on Google and nice. YouTube. Yeah. It's uh, there's uh, seven or eight episodes. Yeah. It's just a little bit of nonsense. It's just a little bit of, you know, a mm. little seven or eight minute episodes. Yeah. Some it's, are five minutes and they're just a bunch of bullshit. But yeah. it's fun. It's, it's just, fun, dumb yeah. bullshit. It, it, yeah. And please don't get offended. Oh. Don't write us. Oh, yeah.
0: Don't waste your time.
1: It's not political. No. It's not you, personal. Yeah, no. If you. We talk about yeah. Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim. We oh. talk about Lobster Theremin.
0: Yeah. A fine record company.
1: Yeah. We talk about Ron Perlman's kids. Mm-hmm. So just listen to that But we're going to jump back into November It's time for Gruff to take over All right. November 21st, 1953 You got something for us, right Gruff? Got a little something something it, uh, f- A little something something A little something something A little something
0: something featured in the issue of Time Magazine
1: Oh, Time Magazine yeah. A little something something from the Time Magazine
0: Yes well, it seems- Get it,
1: get it, kill it
0: Kill it, kill it Suck it Well Sorry lost my temper it's all right
1: it's all right you get it girl you go girl
0: oh well thank you sir
1: you go friend gruff this one out
0: all right so what we're gonna gruff one out (laughs) 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 that's
1: wonderful that's great yeah that's a new thing gruff one out
0: that's I I appreciate the the inappropriateness of that. You're welcome my friend. Thank you my friend. Hit it. So we're going to talk about what's what's referred to as the Piltdown Man. The
1: Piltdown Man. The Piltdown Man. P-I-L-T-D-O-W-N. Yes. Piltdown.
0: Piltdown. Named for the area which it was found. It was found in the Piltdown Gravel Pits.
1: Oh, that's what Piltdown means. The Piltdown Gravel Pits. uh, I don't know what those are.
0: They're gravel pits, you know, outside Pits of of gravel? Pits of gravel, yeah. They're around, I want to say they're around Sussex, but they're somewhere in they're in England.
1: Somewhere in England, I don't know where Sussex is, yeah, but I no know I. it's in England. Yeah, we have a friend that just moved to London. Hopefully, oh. he knows where Sussex is. I imagine. Maddie P. Maddie P. is Biz on the crop mm-hmm. lives in London mm-hmm. now with his baby and his wife and Aww. her
0: family. That's nice.
1: That's good for him. So Sussex gravel pit, well, pilt I mean, down. Yeah, pilt down gravel pits. Okay. The Piltdown.
0: The p- down. I might. The Piltdown. The Piltdown. You go, go to the p- down, eh? Anyway, this- That's Canadian. It, uh, ni- yeah, so go ahead. <laughs> way back in 1912, a man by the name of Charles Dawson claimed he found the missing link. Oh, so we're going missing... to back up to 1912 Yeah, here. we're going back. This all started yeah, in, in 19... 1912.
1: Okay. This guy, Charles Dawson, found the missing link.
0: 41 years ago. Okay. 41 years before, before this. this. Right. This man, Charles Dawson, came forth with a skull.
1: Oh, you know what will make us feel real old? Hmm. If we talk about, so 41 years before 1953 was 1912. To give a
0: perspective, what's 41 years from now? Before like, now. 41 years before now was like 1980? Nineteen seventy? No, wait, forty-one years. Yeah, nineteen, nineteen eighty. Wow, like we remember nineteen eighty. I yeah, remember nineteen eighty is not that long ago, no.
1: but this is only forty-one years, so it's not that long ago. But nineteen twelve to now is a lot more years. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Did I just blow your mind. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so nineteen twelve, this my, Charles Dawson the, found
0: this ta- Charles F- Dawson brought a skull to okay. the British science community. And he stated that this skull represented the—he nat- contacted Arthur Smith Woodward, keeper of geology at the National History Museum. Okay. Seems said like he- a good guy to bring it to Yeah. Oh, gravel beds near Piltdown in East Sussex. All right. He found this skull that he said was from the Pleistocene period that it represented the missing link. Yeah. That linked humans to the other great apes. Wow!
1: Yeah, so that was it. That's a big deal. Man. That is a big deal, and especially
0: yeah. at the time. Everyone was finding this is a big push for fossils and right, like creating the human fossil record.
1: Yeah, let's figure out where we came from.
0: Exactly. And at the time, it was all, at the time in Europe, they were really pressing for presence of early humans. Okay, in somewhere in Eurasia. All right, somewhere in Eurasia. Because most of the finds were, were in North Africa, were in Central Africa, were in the Near East. Okay. That was where most of the finds were. So within the scientific community, Eurasia, Britain specifically, were feeling kind of left out.
1: Okay, They They're, wanted to be part of the, they, they the wanted, Big Bang. Of yeah, they wanted,
0: they wanted to prove that people were there too then. Yeah. You know, not There's just, this
1: push to be like, no, we're not all descended from Africa. Yeah, uh, we're, we're not all come, we
0: didn't all come out of Africa. Yeah. So that allowed that allowed this to catch and hold, even though as soon as nineteen fifteen scientists were looking at it going, no, nah, this is horseshit. Really? Yeah. Like within like there was a man
1: oh so the scientists even then thought, this is bullshit. Oh, yeah. This even, is built
0: down man. E- even then, there were scientists. There was, oh, where is it? That guy. It's a wonderful, ridiculous name. Because all, all these names. If there's
1: one thing we like on American Timelines, it's wonderful,
0: ridiculous names. Oh, see? this is, Oh, there you are. Uh, one of the guys that was examining that... that Heard about this? Yeah, and went to the site to look for other other evidence. Right. His name was Pierre Tlehard de Chardin.
1: Wow, Chart.
0: Uh, chart. Anyway,
1: Pierre de Chartine. Chardin. Oh, Chardin. Yeah. So he's but, not doesn't have Chart in his name. No,
0: he doesn't. Well, that sucks. Well, not for him.
1: Nah, not for him.
0: That's good for him. Yeah, it's probably better for him. <laughs> yeah, but. He, he came across, he, he realized very quickly that these were planted fossils.
1: Okay. And so somebody planted these. They're yeah. not real. Yeah. So. What do. Oh, yeah. I'll let you just. Oh, me. no. But it was. Let us believe that.
0: Yeah. But anyway, that held your. That held. Held in Britain. People People would back uh Dawson's claim even though he had repeatedly found things that were proven to be altered proven Uh, to be not what he said yeah you know he he came forth with a bone uh what they called the bone cricket bat which was a old thigh uh, old horse thigh bone that he fashioned to look like a tool he would often do things like there's... Really? Like yeah. He'd mess with bones to oh, make yeah. them look Oh, the, yeah. The skull he used as evidence was dated later in the 50s, dated to the Middle Ages. He was a medieval skull uh, okay. with a 500-year-old jaw of an orangutan with chimpanzee teeth, uh, so which he... were filed down to look like molars. Ah. Uh. You know, and at the, at the time, there were scientists that looked at it as like these molars... They were obviously filed by an iron file. And by the placement of the canines, the molars wouldn't even be worn down like that.
1: So they could tell these are fakes. This guy's fucking with people. Yeah. So everybody knew that. So what happened in 1953? 1953 is when they finally
0: got the hard science to break down the to, gotcha. to break down how they it was faked how ah, what so they, they had, he had to
1: used. so they had to like suss out what this guy did and took him that long to figure out like this is what he did this yeah. is what he, so they this all knew it. he
0: did this all is along they all knew
1: it. he was a freaking liar. But it took him this long to took him that long debunk to debunk it
0: to to thoroughly debunk it. One of the oddly enough, one of the things that led them lent the most popular credence to it was Sir Arthur Co- was Arthur Conan Doyle's backing of it. Really? Yeah, Ar- he backed it. He at the well, he believed the theory at the time. No, so he didn't wanted to believe it. He, right? That that was the thing. He wanted to believe it because. So is it all
1: racism? Why people want to believe this? Uh,
0: it's. I don't want to say it is because they
1: wanted. They didn't want to believe that they descended from black people. Is that what it
0: is? Well, I, or is that just me jumping to conclusions? I want to say it wasn't, but I pro- it more than likely it was. There's a lot of there. There's a lot of people that don't there's a lot of people that don't even like to think that we're descended from, we're descended from animals. Yeah. Much less other people. Other you know, people that, that
1: aren't white. Yeah. Is, um. so I looked up Sir, Th- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, because I couldn't remember what, he, who he was, but he wrote uh, Sherlock yeah, he Holmes.
0: The, he also wrote The Lost World.
1: He was born the, in Edinburgh. hmm But I was like, you know how, we've you and I have talked about this on the Gruff and Loud, that, that when you look up something on Google, there's like, what people also ask. And the first question is why is why is Arthur Conan Doyle a sir? And the next one is is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Jack the Ripper? Huh? Why do people think that? So I'm going to click it. I don't know. He may have had his faults, but he was not Jack the Ripper. <laughs> uh I don't know why he. I, apparently, people must have thought that. So, anyway, back well, to your yeah. So well, back to you. They, so sorry they, to interrupt no you no. That, but
0: as we're we're practically done, just because yeah, I didn't not a whole lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot, but it all says this. It, it all supports the they want. They were racist white people yeah. that wanted to prove that they were just as they were people from Europe
1: too. I completely see why you got frustrated and wanted to stop because I'm. I'm frustrated too. Yeah. Just thinking about it, because like the more you read, it, it's like this whole thing. The whole reason I'm reading this is just because people didn't want to believe it because they're racist. Yeah. And
0: it's like and they wanted. They wanted. I don't want to
1: think they, about this anymore. They're
0: fucking racist. They, and that's they, it. They wanted to reinforce a Eurocentric mentality of the time. Yeah, you know it's, it's And that's the way. That's where we were. You know, and yeah. and the reason why I bought like I I am a fan of Doyle's work. Okay. You know, and
1: So that's frustrating too. It's like it's an artist you like and mm-hmm. then they're part of this whole thing. Yeah,
0: but then again, I've I've I'm often conflicted with Doyle too because he's the guy that wrote Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes was the character that applied the sci- science scientific method to everyday investigation and actually influenced Investigations okay. with his critical thinking, you never put the evidence. You never put the theory before the evidence. You let the evidence lead you to the theory. You don't change the evidence to fit what you want. And he was changing the. Ev- he was backing the evidence yeah. to uh, change he what he homes. wanted. Yeah, that's kind of to the, to, yeah. I mean, in, and because because this also backed up his worldview that he wrote about in the fiction the the fictional tale the lost world which he which was about a pocket of civilization that was untouched ah. and that could still be it, there still were dinosaurs living in today wow yeah yeah huh because the, at the time there were still parts of south america there's a movie about world wasn't there there's been lots of movies. You love
1: it? it a Who's lot your favorite Sherlock Holmes?
0: I I am a I'm a big fan of the guy Ritchie one. I I'm, <laughs> I'm a I'm a sucker for that. It's, does it give you a boner? No. Okay. No. No. It well, does, that was good. You know that was good. Uh, Thank you for covering right. that. Uh, I mean it, I I wish I would have I wish I would have done a little bit better, but I just found myself getting so close to a fuck white people rant. Yeah. And I don't want everything that comes out of my mouth to be a fuck white people rant. Yeah, Yeah. I get it. But
1: fuck white people, man. Yeah, yeah, so I should have given you, knowing that, I should have given you this next one, which uh, there's just so much in this month that this is another thing. Uh, But I couldn't find much on this one either, so maybe you couldn't. But it's probably a little more interesting and less fuck white people. But November 23rd, the U.S. Air Air Force pilot... Felix Moncla, hmm. Moncla, Moncla had an encounter with a UFO while flying his jet. Radar recorded both the UFO and Moncla's plane on a direct course from one another until both clips merged together and then vanished completely. Huh. Hashtag without a trace. Now there's a hashtag. I don't know why. Wherever I got <laughs> there, there was that fucking hashtag. Um, Yes, so on this evening of November 23rd, 1953, Air Defense Command Ground Intercept Radar Operators at Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, identified an unusual target over Lake Superior near the Sioux Locks. An F-89C Scorpion jet from Kinross Air Force Base was scrambled to investigate the radar return. The Scorpion was piloted by 1st Lieutenant Moncla, with 2nd Lieutenant Robert L. Wilson acting as the Scorpion's radar operator. Uh, Wilson had a difficult time, tracking the object on the Scorpion's radar, so ground radar operators gave Moncla directions towards the object as he flew. Monkla eventually closed in on the object at about 8,000 feet in altitude. Ground control tracked the Scorpion and the unidentified object as two blips on the screen. The two blips on the radar screen grew closer, just as I said, and closer until they seemed to merge. Assuming that Moncla had flown either under or over the target, Ground control anticipated that moments later the scorpion and the object would again appear as two separate blips. Donald Kehoe reported that there was a fear that the two objects had struck one another. But the single blip continued on its previous course. Not sure which one. Attempts were made, I guess that one. Attempts were made, the UFO one. Attempts were made to contact Moncla via radio, but without success. A search and rescue operation by both the USAF and the Royal Canadian Air Force was quickly mounted, but failed to find any trace of the plane or its pilots. Weather conditions were a factor in hampering the search, but nobody's found them
0: since. Wow. I'd never heard about that.
1: I never did either. Well, why is this not more common knowledge? And so I didn't do much more research than this, but I, I just Googled and I don't know the top 3 or 4 things all don't have any information. Like maybe if I really dug deep, maybe MUFON has something. Maybe there's another podcast that's done this and more research, but I probably should have given you that and made you look more into that. But
0: Well, no. I mean, I don't I, I don't mind I don't mind looking up looking Sometimes I give you
1: things, so. well, sometimes my motive is that I don't I'm not sure I understand things. And, well, yeah. and I want to give it to you no. as somebody who's smarter well, to like okay, to explain this to the dumb guy, please. Do you know who eugene o'neill is the playwright
0: i, I am aware of eugene you know O'Neill,
1: o'neill plays what's your you know the o'neill no plays? not your,
0: enough to say my favorite is what or
1: what do you know any of them like the long day's journey into night is like i think the most known uh eugene o'neill just i'm gonna just do this one quick he was born in a hotel and he died in a hotel huh he was born on october 16th 1888 In a hotel, Times Square, and he also died on November twenty seventh, nineteen fifty three, in another hotel in Boston. His last words were, "I knew it, I knew it. Born in a hotel room and died in a hotel room." (laughs) (laughs) How about that? That's that's nice, Eugene O'Neill. Yeah, I I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Now you can tell people you know that. I just like, just as we're recording this, got a cold. Really? Like I don't know. I feel like my voice is different. I've got a cold. Maybe I'm just tired.
0: Well, we were sitting on a balcony for a while.
1: Yeah, we've been outside in the rain. Rain yeah. always gives me a
0: bad allergies and stuff.
1: Um, but I I did way more research than Eugene know than I needed to. So this brings us to November 23rd, 1953. A U.S. scientist named Frank Olson was administered. You already know a little bit about this, right? So- yeah. This guy was administered LSD without his knowledge as part of the MK Ultra program. A week later, Olson ended up dead. The CIA claimed Olson jumped from a hotel window, but later paid his family $750,000 and a second autopsy revealed he was likely assassinated. Assassinated. Yes. So according to the Guardian.coms, where I got pretty much all of this. So again... We are not a an official podcast that you would look for for any information. No. No. So this not is not a we're going to tell both sides. We're going to do a lot of research. This is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. This yeah. is not a podcast for information. You're you're not authorized to write a paper for college for this you and say not. and use American Timelines podcast as a source. We are not journalists. We are entertainment only. So I have one source only. I'm only looking at one side of this. So I'm I'm going to basically re- Kinda tell you almost word for word what the guardian said, so you don't have to read it with your eyes. You can close your eyes, you can Ooh. drive your car, you can do whatever. And so I can tell nice. you. So it's not word for word, but I'm gonna basically just well, speak from not, this
0: article. You know, if you if you have closed captions on and you're yeah. still listening, yeah. Sometimes the closed caption doesn't match the words that they're actually saying.
1: That's true. So you don't you don't have to read is what I'm doing for you. But I'm just gonna preface that because one time we got a complaint from the Menendez brothers, <laughs> uh, and and I don't think I can't remember. It was somebody associated with the Menendez brothers. They were mad at our Menendez brothers episode because Amy just, Amy was convinced that they didn't just read like one source's story on the thing, and it was oh yeah one sided. Oh of course yeah. Well leave it to you to fucking just leave one side. Every, typical. Everybody just reads one side, and we're like, boy that person's angry, and then and then they're. Their, uh, username was gone and deleted at a few weeks later. So I think it was one of the Menendez brothers. <laughs> so I don't know if they're in prison or what their deal is, but I think it was one of them. So I'm just saying that to the Menendez brothers or anybody else who's, you know, we didn't do a lot of research, but this yeah. is apparently the story. So look it up for yourself if you don't. But, so he, Frank Olson, uh, yeah. So this was an article by Stephen Kinzer, uh, in The Guardian, uh, It's really good. It's a really good article. Some some of it's going to be just right from the article. Glass shattered high above 7th Avenue in Manhattan before dawn on a cold November morning in 1953. Seconds later, a body hit the sidewalk. Jimmy the doorman at the Stadler Hotel was momentarily stunned. Then he turned and ran into the hotel lobby. We got a jumper, he shouted. We got a jumper. The night manager peered up through the darkness at his hulking hotel. After a few moments, he picked out a curtain flapping through an open window. That's the sound it made. It turned out to be room 1018A. Two names were on the registration card, Frank Olsen and Robert Lashbrook. Police officers entered the room with guns drawn. They saw no one. The window was open, and they pushed open the door to the bathroom and found Lashbrook sitting on the toilet, head in hands. He had been sleeping, he said, and I heard a noise, and then I woke up. "'The man that went out the window? What was his name?' one officer asked. "'Olson,' came the reply. Frank Olson. "'In all my years in the hotel business,' the night manager later reflected, "'I never encountered a case where someone got up in the middle of the night, "'ran across a dark room in his underwear, avoiding two beds and dove through a closed window with the shade and curtains drawn.' "'Leaving the police officers, the night manager returned to the lobby on a hunch, "'asked the telephone operator if any calls had recently been made from that room. "'Yes,' she replied.' And she had eavesdropped, not an uncommon practice in an era when hotel phone calls were routed through a switchboard. Someone in the room had called a number on Long Island, which was listed as belonging to Dr. Harold Abramson, a distinguished physician, less well-known as an LSD expert and one of the CIA's medical collaborators. Well, he's gone, the caller had said, Abramson replied. Well, that's too bad. To the first police officers on the scene, this seemed like another of the human tragedies they saw too often. A distressed or distraught man had taken his own life. They could have known that the dead man and the survivors were scientists who helped direct one of the U.S. government's most highly classified intelligence programs. Early in the next morning, one of Olson's close colleagues drove to Maryland to break the terrible news of the dead man's family. He told Alice Olson and her three children that Frank fell or jumped to his death from a hotel window. Naturally, they were shocked, but they had no choice other than to accept what they were told. Alice didn't object when told that given the condition of her husband's body, family members shouldn't view it. The funeral was held with a closed casket. There, the case might have ended. Decades later, however, spectacular revelations that cast Olson's death in a completely new light. First, the CIA admitted that shortly before he died, Olson's colleagues had lured him to a retreat and fed him LSD without his knowledge. Then it turned out that Olson started talking about leaving the CIA and told his wife that he made a terrible mistake. Slowly, a counter-narrative emerged. Olson was disturbed about his work and he wanted to quit, leading his comrades to consider him a security risk. All of this led to Room 1018A. Frank Olson had been one of the first scientists assigned to the secret U.S. biological warfare labs at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland during the Second World War. There he began working with a a handful of colleagues who would accompany him throughout his career, his clandestine career. One was Harold Abramson. Others included... Ex-Nazi scientists who have been brought to work on secret missions in the U.S.
0: Oh, paperclip.
1: That's it. For a time, they worked on aerosol technologies, uh, ways to spray germs or toxins on enemies, and to defend, and to defend against such attacks. Later, Olson met with American intellig- intelligence officers who had experimented with truth drugs in Europe. He was discharged from the Army in 1944, but remained at Fort Detrick on a civilian contract and continued his research into aerobiology. Several times, he visited the secluded Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, which was used for testing living bio- biological agents. Uh, also, munitions and aerosol cloud production. So he's into all this kind yeah. of stuff, and See, he's feeling is, bad
0: about it. This is why people are all so fucked up around the sh- about shit today.
1: All right. I mean, coronavirus. Why would you not think it's one of this? You know, people know this stuff happened. Um, he traveled to the Caribbean uh, to test the vulnerability of animals to toxic clouds. The next year, is part of Operation Sea Spray, which, uh, which in which dust engineered to float like anthrax was released near San Francisco. He traveled to Fort Terry, a secret army base on Plum Island, off the eastern tip of Long Island, which was used to test toxins too deadly to be brought to the U.S. mainland. Uh, He became the chief of of the Special Operations Division. His job description was vague but tantalizing. Collect data of interest to the division with particular emphasis on the medico biological aspects and coordinate his work with other agencies conducting work of a similar nature that meant the cia so his specialty was the airborne distribution of biological germs according to one study and he had developed a range of lethal aerosols and handy-sized containers um he 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 made some crippling food poisons uh all kinds of things he he kind of developed anthrax uh Further weapons he worked on included a cigarette lighter, which gave out an almost instant lethal gas; a lipstick that would kill on contact damn. with skin; and a neat pocket spray for asthma sufferers that induced pneumonia. So
0: this guy, damn, I mean, it was like some, James Bond shit. Yeah, that's some like uh, I was going to say evil James Bond shit, but no, just James Bond shit. Yeah, that's some, you know.
1: So when he stepped down, he was complaining. He, he stepped down. And he complained that the pressures of the job aggravated his ulcers. Um, but he stayed, he, he stayed within the division, but did some other things, I guess for a while. Um, and he was always on a hidden military base and this is where he became, he came to know Sidney Gottlieb and his deputy, Robert Lashbrook, the two scientists that would soon be running a top secret CIA project codenamed MK ultra Gottlieb was the CIA's chief poison maker. Over two decades, he oversaw medical experiments and special interrogation projects in which hundreds of people were tormented and many minds were permanently shattered. During this period, there was an obsession at the CIA. There was a way to control the human mind, and if it can be found, the prize will be nothing less than global mastery. The global domination is what yeah. they wonder. They're Cobra Commander is what these guys well, are. Well,
0: they're, they're, they're more Dr. Mindbender.
1: Dr. Than Mindbender, or yeah. Or right, Crystal
0: yeah. Ball. No, Crystal Ball. It's Dr. Mindbender.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, this Gottlieb guy wanted to discover how much LSD a human being could take and wonder if there's there a breaking point, a dose so massive that it would shatter the mind and blast away consciousness, leaving a void which new impulses or even a new personality could be, could be implanted. Uh so in his lab at Fort Dietrich Olson directed experiments that involved gassing or poisoning lab animals and those experiences disturbed him he'd come to work in the morning and see piles of dead monkeys his son later recalled that messes with you he wasn't the right guy for that so Olson also saw human beings suffer like he wasn't a torturer himself but he observed and monitored torture sessions in several countries uh let's just say he was he had to be fucked up
0: Well, yeah, you can't, I mean, you don't need to take fucking LSD and look at that shit going to work every day.
1: Anyway, as Thanksgiving approached in 1953, Olson received an invitation to gather on Wednesday, the 18th of November, for a retreat at a cabin on Deep Creek Lake in Western Maryland. This retreat was one of a series that Gottlieb convened every few months. Officially, it was a coming together of two groups, four CIA scientists From the technical services staff, which ran MK Ultra, and five army scientists from the special ops division of the chemical corps. (laughs) In reality, these men worked so closely together that they compromised a single unit. They comprised a single unit. Sorry, they were comrades in search of cosmic secrets. It made sense for them to gather, discuss their projects, and exchange ideas in a relaxed environment.
0: <laughs> That's just a straight squad of fuckery.
1: It really is. The yeah. first 24 hours of the retreat were uneventful. On Thursday evening, the group gathered for dinner and then settled back for a round of drinks. Lashbrook, Gottlieb's deputy, produced a bottle of Quantro and poured glasses for the company. Several included Olsen drank heartily. After 20 minutes, Gottlieb asked if anyone was feeling odd. Several said they were. Gottlieb then told them their drinks had been spiked with LSD. This news was not well received. No. Even in their altered state, the subjects could understand what had been done to them. Olson was especially upset. According to his son, Eric, he became quite agitated and was having a serious confusion with separating reality from fantasy. Soon, though, he and the others were carried away into a hallucinatory, hallucinatory world. Gottlieb later reported that they were boisterous and laughing, unable to continue the meeting or engage in sensible conversations. The next morning, they were in only slightly better shape. The meeting broke up. Olsen headed back to Frederick. By the time he arrived, he was a changed man. Oh, yeah. They probably hadn't
0: come down yet. Oh, yeah. like pro- I mean, if, if, if yeah, dude, I, if they woke up, if they, if they f- fell asleep tripping balls. Yeah. And then woke up still tripping, but with that mentality of, "whoop, got to go.
1: It just wonder about your day with that. I no, can't imagine what that could do to you
0: psychologically, too. Like, well, especially especially if you don't have a frame of reference. And you weren't planning on doing this. Yeah. Like that's, that's crazy. I crazy. All, all I know is that I'm just happy that he wasn't the only one dosed. Yeah. That was my big worry when I first started like yeah look through it, i was like man if they just if those just those this guy yeah. that's just fucking bullshit
1: i mean it, the whole thing is bullshit well yeah they were like from
0: the get-go though but yeah
1: it's crazy that he, <laughs> he
0: was, did this and then he told them all like, yeah well, i mean I'm, I'm glad he told them i would have f- the fuck with it yeah <laughs> the
1: next morning the 23rd of november olsen showed up early at fort dietrich his boss vincent ruitt arrived soon after Neither were in good shape. More than four days have passed since they've been given LSD without their knowledge. Ruit later called it the most frightening experience he's ever had or hoped to have. Olson began pouring out his doubts and fears. He appeared to be agitated and asked me if I should, uh, asked me if I should fire him or if he should quit. Ruit later recalled. Ruit tried to calm him, assuming, assuring him that his work was excellent and recognized as such. Slowly, Olson was persuaded that resignation was too extreme a reaction. By this time, MKUltra had been underway for seven months. It was one of the government's deepest secrets, guarded by security that was, as Olsen had been told when he joined the Special Ops Division, tighter than tight. Barely two be- dozen men knew its true nature. Nine had been at Deep Creek Lake. Several of those had been surreptitiously dosed with LSD. Now, one of them seemed out of control. This was no light matter for men who believed that the success or failure of MK Ultra might determine the fate of the U.S. and all humanity. Olson spent ten years at Fort Detrick and knew most, if not all, of the Special Ops Division's secrets. He had repeatedly visited Germany and brought home pictures from Heidelberg and Berlin, where the U.S. military maintained clandestine interrogation centers. He was one of s- several Special Ops Division scientists who were in France. On August sixteenth, nineteen fifty one, when an entire French village, Point Saint Esprit, was mysteriously seized by mass hysteria, which Amy and I talked about on a previous episode. Mm-hmm. So he he knew about that. So all of the things that he knew and that the prospect that he might reveal uh what he had seen her done was terrifying. So they couldn't oh, yeah. let this no, guy no, leave. Th-
0: Yeah. Uh you can't let this guy talk about this shit in a bar, let alone not be employed by you.
1: Well, and Olson's friend, Norman Cornroyer later said he was very, very open and not scared to say what he thought. He didn't give a damn. Frank Olson pulled no punches at any time. And that's what they were scared of, I'm sure. Um, Olson doubts deepened in spring of 1953. He visited the top-secret microbiological research establishment at Porton Down in Wiltshire, where government scientists were studying the effects of sarin and other nerve gases, uh, and... In May, there was a 20-year-old soldier who was dosed with sarin there and began foaming at the mouth, collapsed in the convulsions, and died an hour later. Afterward, Olsen spoke about his discomfort with a psychiatrist who helped direct the research, William Sargent. A month later, he was back in Germany on that trip. According to a later reconstruction of his travels, Olsen visited a CIA safe house near Stuttgart, where he saw men dying, often in agony, from the weapons he had made. Uh, after stops in Scandinavia and Paris, he returned to Britain and visited Sargent again. Immediately after their meeting, Sargent wrote a report saying that Olson was deeply disturbed over what he'd seen in CIA safe houses in Germany and displayed symptoms of not wanting to keep secret what he had witnessed. He sent his report to his superiors with the understanding that they would forward it to the CIA. Sargent said later there were common interests to pr- protect Five days after being dosed with LSD, Olsen was still disoriented. Ruit, his boss at the Special Ops Division called Gottlieb to report this. Gottlieb asked him to bring Olsen in for a chat. At their meeting, Gottlieb later testified, Olsen seemed confused in certain areas of his thinking. He made a quick decision. Olson must be taken to New York City and delivered to the physician most intimately tied to MKUltra, Harold Abramson. Alice Olson, his wife, told was told that Abramson was chosen because her husband had to see a physician who had equal security clearance so he could talk freely. Which is probably yeah. partly true, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was true Abramson was not a psychiatrist, but he was an MK Ultra initiate. Gottlieb knew that Abramson's first loyalty was to MK Ultra. Or as he would have put it, to the security of the US. That made him the ideal person to probe Olson's inner mind. mind. And Olson told Abramson that ever since the Deep Creek Lake retreat, he'd been unable to work well. He couldn't concentrate. He forgot how to spell. He couldn't sleep. Uh, Abramson sought to reassure Olson, who seemed to relax afterwards. A week had passed since Olson was given LSD at Deep Creek Lake. He planned to return return to his family for Thanksgiving dinner. The day after seeing Abramson unaccompanied by Lashbrook and Rouette, he boarded a flight to Washington. An MK Ultra colleague was waiting when they landed. Rouette and Olsen got into his car for a drive to Frederick. Soon after they set off, Olsen's mood changed. He asked that the car be stopped. Olsen turned to Rouette and announced that he felt ashamed to meet his wife and family because he was so mixed up. What do you want me to do, Rouette asked. Just let me go. Let me go off by myself. I can't do that. Well, then just turn me over to police. They're looking for me anyway. Rewitt suggested Olson return to New York for another session with Abramson, and Olson agreed. So they took a taxi to Abramson's weekend home on Long Island, and Abramson spent about an hour with Olson, followed by 20 minutes with Lashbrook. The next morning, Abramson, Lashbrook, and Olson drove back to Manhattan, and during a session at his 58th Street office, Abramson persuaded Olson that he should agree to be hospitalized as a voluntary patient at a Maryland sanatorium. Olsen and Lashbrook left, registered at the Statler Hotel, and were given room 1018A. Over dinner at the Statler, Olson told Lashbrook that he was looking forward to his hospitalization. He mused about books he would read. Lashbrook later said he was almost the Dr. Olson I knew before the experiment. The two returned to their room, and Olson washed his socks in the sink, which is gross, watched TV <laughs> for a while, and lay down to sleep. At 2.25 a.m., he went out the window. Huh. According to this article, every Secret Service needs officers who specialize in cleaning up messes. In the CIA of the 1950s, those officers worked for Sheffield Edwards at the Office of Security. The cover-up he directed in the hours and days after after Frank Olson died was a model of brisk efficiency. Uh, With the calm self-assurance for which he was known at at the CIA, Edwards announced how the cover-up would unfold. First, the New York police would be persuaded not to investigate and to cooperate in misleading the press. Second, a fake career, a legend, would be constructed for Lashbrook, who as the sole witness would be questioned by investigators and could under no circumstances be recognized as working for the CIA, much less MKUltra. Third, the Olson family would have to be informed, placated, and kept cooperative. Despite the successful cover-up, Olson's death was a near disaster for the CIA, It claimed came close to threatening the very existence of MK-Ultra. Gottlieb and his bosses at the CIA might have taken this as a moment of reflection. In light of his death, they could have reasoned further experiments with psychoactive drugs should be stopped, at least on unwitting subjects, but instead they proceeded as if Olson's death had never happened. On June 12, 1975, the Washington Post ran a story about an Army scientist who had been drugged with LSD by the CIA, reacted badly, and jumped out the window of a New York hotel. This story, with its lurid mix of drugs, death, and CIA, proved irresistible. And for the next several days, reporters barraged the CIA with demands to know more. The Olson family called a press conference in the family's backyard, and Alice read a statement saying that the family had decided to file a lawsuit against the CIA, uh, asking for several million dollars in damage, she, damages. She insisted that her husband had not acted irrational or sick during the last days of his life, was very melancholy, and said she w- he was going to leave his job. Since 1953, we have struggled to understand Frank Olson's death as an inexplic- inexplicable suicide, she said. The true nature of his death was concealed for 22 years. Besides announcing plans to sue the CIA, the Olson family also asked the New York Police Department to open a new investigation. And The Manhattan District Attorney, attorney Robert Morgenthau replied immediately, promising that his office would begin looking into certain aspects of the case. Alarm bells went off at the White House after the Olson family announced its plan to sue the CIA. A lawsuit, if allowed to proceed, would give the family as well as homicide detectives in New York a tool they could use to force disclosure of deep secrets. President Ford's chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and his deputy, Dick Cheney, Recognized the danger.
0: <laughs> Cheney
1: warned Rumsfeld in a memo that a lawsuit might force the CIA to disclose highly classified national security information. To head off this disaster, he recommended that Ford make a public expression of regret and express a willingness to meet personally with Mrs. Olsen and her children. So Gerald Ford took his aide's advice and invited Alice and her three adult children to the White House. On July 21, 1975,
0: July twenty first, nineteen twenty eight. Yeah,
1: they met in the Oval Office.
0: Well, do you think they watched the show, the police show starring Stacey Keach and Carl Franklin called Caribe?
1: Oh, was that on that same day on that July twenty first? It was.
0: That, was a, oh. that, that it was a show about two Miami-based detectives battling crime in the Caribbean. Oh, I'm sure they did.
1: Probably. Well, on that day, they met in the Oval Office, and it was a unique historical moment, the only time an American president has ever summoned the family of a CIA officer who died violently and apologized on behalf of the U.S. government. Later, they met with CIA Director William Colby at the agencies HQ in Langley, Virginia, and he apologized for what he called a terrible thing that should never have happened. Some of our people were out of control in those days, Colby said. They went too far. There were problems of supervision and administration. White House lawyers offered the Olson family $750,000 in exchange for dropping its legal claims. After some hesitation, the family accepted. Congress passed a special bill approving the payment, and that would have closed the case if Frank Olson had remained quiet in his grave. But at Olson's funeral... Gottlieb had told grieving relatives that if they ever had questions about what happened, he'd be happy to answer them. More than two decades later, at the end of 1984...
0: The end of 1984? Yeah. I have 1994.
1: I didn't give you that, but what happened at the end of 1984? The same year that Van Halen's 1984 came out? Yeah. Yeah, they decided to accept its offer and called to arrange an appointment. When Alice... I meant to give you that. When Alice... Eric and Niles Olsen appeared at his door. His first reaction was relief. I'm so happy you don't have a weapon, Gottlieb said. I had a dream last night. You arrived at this door and shot me. Eric was taken aback. Later, he came to marvel at what he saw as Gottlieb's manipulative power. Before we even got through the door, we were apologizing to him and reassuring him. He said it was a brilliant and sophisticated way to turn the whole thing around. He began by telling the family what had happened at Deep Creek Lake on the 19th of November, 1953, uh, and that these guys were given LSD to find out what would happen if scientists were taken prisoner and drugged, Would they divulge secret research and information. Then he began musing about Olson. Your father and I were very much alike, he told Eric. We both got into this because of a patriotic feeling. We both went a little too far. We did things we probably shouldn't have done. That was as close to a confession as Gottlieb ever came. He would not say what aspects of MK Ultra went a little too far or what Olson did uh, that they probably shouldn't have done. Nor would he entertain questions about inconsistencies in the story of Olson's death. When Eric pressed him, he reacted sharply. As the family were rising to leave, Gottlieb pulled Eric aside. You are obviously very troubled by your father's suicide, he said. Have you ever considered getting into a therapy group for people whose parents have committed suicide? Eric did not follow that suggestion, but it left a deep impression on him. For years, he'd been confused and depressed by the story of his father's death. But only after meeting Gottlieb did he resolve to bring his search for truth to the center of his life. I didn't have the confidence in my skepticism to ignore his ploys, but when he made that therapy group suggestion, that was the moment when he overplayed his hand, he said. At that moment, I understood how much Gottlieb had a stake in defusing me. And it was also at that moment that the the determination to show he had played a role in murdering my father was born eric olson waited another decade until after his mother died before taking his next step arranging to exhume his father's body several reporters stood near him as a backhoe clawed through the earth at linden hill cemetery in frederick maryland on june 2nd 1994
0: june 2nd that was yeah that was a thursday Mm-hmm. That was must see. Thir- that was must see TV Thursday on Wait, NBC.
1: He's, he's having his father exhumed on Must See TV on Thursday. What was exactly. on?
0: Exactly. Well, that was that was the the days of Mad About You and Wings and Seinfeld and Frasier with Law and Order filling that gap of justice at uh-huh. the end of Thursday night. Wow. And Fox? Yeah. Fox was that was when the Simpsons were on Thursday. No, oh, Simpson was on Thursday. Simpsons was on Thursday. That. that was the lead it was the lead in for the Sinbad show.
1: Oh, the Sinbad Show. I I,
0: I, I haven't thought about the Sinbad show in a long time.
1: I forgot the Sinbad had a
0: show. Exactly. But that then that takes us to In Living Color.
1: In Living Color. In Living Color. J Lo was on In Living Color.
0: The head choreographer was Rosie Perez.
1: Oh really? Yeah. Keenan Ivory Wayans? The,
0: all the way in. All the
1: way in. Does You got Jamie Fox. Jamie Fox. Jim, Jim Carrey. Carey. Tommy yeah. Davidson. Tommy Davidson, baby.
0: People, we are forgetting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Damn it, we're bad people for forgetting. Uh, David Allen Greer. Oh
0: my God, that, we are bad people. We forgot fucking. David and there was Alan a white Greer.
1: woman on there too that I was forgetting. I, I can picture her,
0: but I don't know her name. I don't know. I want That's to say okay. Jennifer, but anyway, after in Living Color. Herman's Head.
1: Herman's Head. Herman's Head. It's a great show. It was a great show. It had that fat guy from Groundhog Day.
0: That fat guy from Groundhog Day? Was one of the characters? Well, it was in his one head. of the voices in the head. Remember that
1: fat guy from Groundhog Day that he's like he's like I think he's one the guy that stays at the Airbnb with him and says something stupid about the weather or something in the morning. I don't know. Fair enough. That's cool. Those were all on TV. Those were all yeah. Well, a forensic pathologist, James Starrs of George Washington University Law School, spent a month studying Olson's body. When he was finished, he called a news conference. His tests for toxins in the body, he reported, had turned up nothing. The wound pattern, however, was curious. Hmm. Stars had found no glass shards on the victim's head or neck, as might be expected if he had dived through a window. Most intriguingly, although Olson had reported landed, reportedly landed on his back, the skull above his left eye was disfigured. I would venture to say that his hematoma hematoba is singular evidence of the possibility that Dr. Olson was struck a stunning blow to the head by some person or instrument prior to his exiting through the window of room 1018A, Stars concluded. Later, he was more emphatic. I think Frank Olson was intentionally, deliberately, with malice, a forethought thrown out of that window. Besides conducting the autopsy, uh. stars interviewed people connected to the case. One was Gottlieb. The two men met on Sunday morning at Gottlieb's home in Virginia. Stars later wrote that it was the most perplexing, perplexing of all the interviews I conducted. So I wrote, I was emboldened to ask how he could so recklessly and cavalierly have jeopardized the lives of so many of his own men by the Deep Creek Lodge experiment with LSD. Professor he said without mincing a word you just do not understand i have the security of this country in my hands he did not say more nor need did nor need he have done so nor did i dumbfounded offer a rejoinder the means and message the means and message was pe- the message was clear <laughs> Risking the lives of the unwitting victims of the Deep Creek experiment was simply the necessary means to a greater good than protection of the national security. Because Olson's survivors had signed away their right to legal relief when they accepted their 750000 compensation payment in 1975, they could not sue the CIA. Although Starr's report and other discoveries sharpened Eric's already powerful suspicion that foul play lay behind his father's death, he could not prove it. Recognize that painful fact? He and his brother decided that it was finally time to reinter their father's body. On August 8, 2002, which I should have given you that day, which I didn't I didn't get this far. This is all stuff I'm reading for the first time. No, August, doing, I mean for a cold read, that's pretty
0: good. it's good.
1: On August eight, 2002, the day before the reburial, he called reporters to his home, announced they had reached a new conclusion about what had happened to his father. The death of Frank Olson on November 20, 1953 was a murder, not a suicide, he declared. This is not an LSD drug experiment story as it was represented in 1975. This is a biological warfare story. Frank Olson did not die because he was an experimental guinea pig who experienced a bad trip. He died because of concern that he would divulge information concerning a highly classified CIA interrogation program in the early 50s and concerning the use of biological weapons by the United States in the Korean War. And that's all we have for November of 1953. That's the end. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. And we're going to finish the year next episode in December. Uh, so, so Steve, you knew about this, and you said they're doing a Netflix?
0: Yeah, they're doing a Netflix show called Wormwood about this whole hullabaloo thing. That's the girl that we call Oh, remember. Kelly Park, Kelly Cofield Park. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so they're doing a Netflix story about Frank
0: Olson? The like I, a
1: Netflix movie?
0: Yeah, the, a Netflix series, probably a limited series. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So well, I mean, it was, That weird. was
1: long and I know I should have edited it down more, but it's hard I, to find the time.
0: And and there is hard, hard to find over. a like it, it you you it, it feels like that was <sighs> uh editing that felt like like that was what I wanted to do with the Piltdown man, right? yeah, I was just, just straight up all the information because it was just ridiculous. they yeah. both; it, it was both people in power covering their own asses. Yeah, and it's just sad. And, like when you
1: get into this, it's all like just like it's sad when you realize, and that's what this is why I think so many people are scared and don't want the real history taught. No, like please don't tell the like people don't want to face the fact. That we live in a corrupt country, a corrupt society that's been well, it, based in corruption that's been running with i mean it's been bad thing after bad thing after bad thing well, for years, and people just don't want to they want to believe this is the greatest country in the world and well, it's, that's, it's the people, good the people and that did just this,
0: the people that did those things believe they were doing it for the greater good they mm-hmm. believed they were making sacrifices right you know
1: and that I think that's part of it I mean there is a percentage of the population that thinks. I mean, everybody thinks they're doing the good thing and the right thing, yeah. and everyone else is wrong. Everybody thinks that it's like yeah. that's, that's why they
0: always say the road to hell is paved with good intentions.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember the day when I thought like it's it's not everybody thinks they're right. Nope, there's nobody out there that's like Cobra Commander just saying
0: I love evil and I'm going to take well, over see, everybody. That's the thing. Like, I don't like every villain thinks they're no one's a villain in their story.
1: Yeah, the villain thinks they're the good guys. Yeah, yeah. so maybe they're we're the villains.
0: Th- I'm used to I'm I'm lucky in the fact that I'm used to thinking I'm the villain.
1: Well, I think if you, if you didn't always wear like a like black bandana over your eyes with the holes cut out.
0: Well, I mean, I like the mask look. Lone Ranger. Yeah, he wasn't a villain. He wore that. He was a villain to the people he fought, and he fought the. He he was traditionally fighting the power structure of the area.
1: The Joker was a villain. Yeah.
0: And he he relished in his villainy because he looked at he looked at the people who saw themselves as good as hypocrites.
1: If Gruff and Loud are superheroes, who's our nemesis? Who's our villain that we fight?
0: I don't think we fight our Father villain. Time. I don't think we fight Father since we're since we're
1: our skin is still so supple. It is. I mean, we are young-looking fellows. I think if you shaved our gray beards, we could at least pass for mid-thirties. I think people check out the Gruff and Loud show and they're like, man. Man, these dudes are sexy. These are the hottest dudes on YouTube. I don't. I don't. Do you think they say that?
0: I. I don't know. I. Like, I don't like chicks and
1: things. and gay guys are like, man, I want to bang these dudes. I don't. All I, right, they don't. I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't pay attention. Anyway,
1: anyway. check out the Gruff and Loud show on YouTube. It's and new. It's on History for Jerks. And, keep, and, and, and subscribe and like and all that stuff
0: and if you thought a you, thumbs up and if you, and you share thought it. you might have learned something from this yeah you won't you won't feel oh, that way after you won't learn, loud. You'll learn a
1: little but you might learn about it. if you don't know anything about outsider house music you could learn a little bit because yeah. we are learning together no yeah that's like we're just telling about stuff we just looked up and stuff mm-hmm. and then we're just bullshitting and then in one episode you get a deep dive into steve's brain and what's going on in his brain and it's not pretty. Spoiler alert: It has lobsters in it. It does. Lobsters pee out of their faces.
0: That's weird, but it's true. <laughs> and it's in your brain. It's why they don't. That's why they don't need to salt anything on their food. Yeah, baby,
1: they pee out of their faces. Anyway, thanks for listening. This has been a long episode, and this has been gruff and loud. He's gruff. I'm he's loud. loud. Yeah, he's gruff. Well, I'll say he's it again. Loud. He's gruff. He's loud. Thank you for listening to American Tyler. Thank Hot you super very jerk. Much. Check out Nerd School. Check out Gruff and Loud Show. Uh, And you know, while you're at it, just hit up Pornhub and look at look up uh, some POV action.
0: <laughs> I don't I don't
1: know if Pornhub needs any help, but and they probably don't need any help. They mean, give us money. Maybe they're not giving us money. That you know. uh, get out of here, Chuck Berry. Oh fuck!
0: What do What am I? What's
1: the other thing? Let Dale through. Let Dale through. Remember, that you were there for that story, right? The Let Dale through thing. No. You weren't at that pay per view Mike Tyson fight? No. At dude. some BG house? No. Jeremy Ordaz's house?
0: I was not.
1: It was a Mike Tyson fight at Jeremy Ordaz's house. And Brendan Kane and I, and I thought you, maybe it was Abner, they, were sitting on a coffee table. I mean, there were so many people at this house because they got the fight. Yeah. You only had to give a dollar to watch because there were so many people there. And we were like right in front of the TV on the. Co- like, People sat on a coffee table. That's how many people were in here watching. And some guy kept hitting Kane on the shoulder and was like, Hey, hey. Kane was like, Yeah, what do you want? Let Dale through. So Kane would move kinda over so mm-hmm. Dale could get through. And Dale never walked nobody walked through. So he went back to sitting up. The guy hit him again. Hey, 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 hey man, hey man, what? Let Dale through. Let Dale through. Okay. He moves over to let Dale through, and Dale never comes. So he, huh. like, sits back up again, and it's like, all right, whatever. And the guy's like, hey, hey, man, hey, man. I like, say, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> He's like, let Dale through. And I don't, that's all I remember. Dale never came through. But but we need to remember to let Dale through. Well, we're still expecting Dale to come through. So please, everyone. Just let and Dale And it's through. a good lesson. It's like, why don't you let Dale through? Why don't we all let Dale through? Yeah. You like- know? Life is better if you just go ahead and let Dale through. And Kane was like done, and he was not letting Dale through anymore. Mm. But I think we should all just let Dale through. Even if they have to ask you three times, just let Dale through. Just let Dale through. Just, you know, it's not worth it. Let Dale through. Exactly. Just, just, we just let Dale through. So it's a good way to end the show. Let Dale through, everybody. Let Dale through. Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.